This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urate moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the latest episode of Leader ReadyCast. Over the past year plus, we have seen an extraordinary overlap between public health and emergency management. Amazing things have happened, though it was not always easy because public health and emergency management are two distinct worlds. These agencies are funded differently, the professionals have different training and expertise, and they're organized differently. Yet every major crisis has a public health component And as we've seen during the pandemic, emergency management can greatly assist in a public health response. This is, as I will explain in a moment, a classic code on the cube problem. But first, let me introduce today's guest, Todd DeVoe. Todd is the program host for EM Weekly, a must-listen podcast for everyone in the business. He's also the director of emergency management at Titan Health and Security Technologies. He has a lot to say, and it should be an interesting conversation. Todd, welcome to the program. Oh, Eric, thank you for having me. Really good to be talking to you about this. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned the cone and the cube. And for the benefit of those who don't know it, uh, it's a tool we use. You imagine a, uh, a cube, imagine that it is opaque, and inside of it is a cone. And if I drill a, a hole in the top and you look in, what do you see? Well, you're going to see a circle. And if I drill a hole in the side, looking through that, what are you going to see? You'll see a triangle. Now, you have to ask yourself which view is right, which view is wrong. Well, the paradox of the cone of the cube is that they're both right and they're both wrong. Because when you look through the top, you will see a circle. When you look through the side, you will see a triangle, so you're right. But what's inside is actually a cone. So you're both wrong. You only get to the full understanding by bringing the two together. Mm-hmm. Now, I think to me, as a great analogy for the way that public health and emergency management can, t- can come out of a situation. But Todd, I'd love to hear from you. What's your take on this analogy as it applies to emergency management and public health? Well, first of all, that, that analogy of the cone of the cube um, is, is actually in a, in a very well used. It's, it's very, if you take a look at it and you take a look at diving into problems and taking a look at first perspectives, um, we do come at things from a different angle and without having everybody at the table, you really miss a huge component of what you're doing. So when it comes to emergency management, we have to be a big tent uh, organization. And this morning I was actually speaking to the um, uh, battalion chief from FDNY um, and he's part of the incident command um, system. Um, for they have a, a all hazard incident management team over there. And, you know, one of the issues that they have, you know, is not being able to bring everybody to the table. What I mean by that is uh, there's some at the, at the higher levels, there's some conflict uh, between the goals and objectives of, say, NYPD and then, you know, sanitation and the parks department and, you know, FDNY. Um, and in order for things to work, they all have to come together and sit um, at the same table and to be able to bring their different perspectives into, in, into the fold. And the interesting part about it is you see the first responders working together well um, on the scene, um, 
pretty seamlessly. They, they, you know, they get along and whatnot. It just seems to be like when you start fighting for money is where you start to see the disconnect. And I think, you know, kind of looking at the, uh, what you're discussing idea of the public health versus emergency management, um, um, diagram or, or you know issues that are going on uh, and maybe it is it could, comes down to funding in some cases and what their roles are and so without having both teams inside the room at the same time discussing what the goals and objectives are for this public health crisis uh, sometimes there could be conflict yeah you know i think I, you're right I, the points you make are really spot on and i think it would it would actually be very interesting to see how this system would look if we designed it from the bottom up instead of the top down so we funded it as it functions uh, and we had oversight as it functions as opposed to all the silos and the individual pieces uh, i think you might get to a very different system but this is this is not new i was on a research call this morning uh and a large global corporation I, I can't name here but we all would know who we all know who it is we would know the name you recognize the name um so that when the coronavirus first started business continuity wasn't at the table mm -hmm. because somebody said this is a novel virus. Business continuity is about you know, recognizable risks. So what have they got to add? Well, of course, they've got a huge amount to add to that, <laughs> that conversation. Uh, but again, some of the brain clicked and said, I'm looking through this hole in the cube. And, and, and that's, this is what I see so I can exclude everything else. And I think we've really got to bring them together. Now, one of the interesting things about the COVID response has been that FEMA took a very different role, a much bigger role than they typically take in a public health emergency. Um, you know, what do you think the FEMA and its state and local counterparts are likely to have to, the role they're going to have in other public health incidents going forward? Is this going to stick or we're going to go back to business as usual? I think it's going to stick. I think we're going to see a fundamental change in, in how emergency management is rolled out um, across all levels from local jurisdictions um, all the way up to FEMA. And, and what I mean by that is a lot of times people didn't understand, I say people, talking about elected officials, uh, maybe even some city administrators, didn't really understand what emergency management could do for the community. And we see this bifurcation coming through even more, we take a look at the idea of the of the resilience, the chief resilient officers versus emergency management, and where they're putting them in separate offices and not having them work together. And again, that silo effect occurs, where the resilient uh, officers, the chief resilient officers, or whatever title that they have over there, uh, start looking at like economic issues and maybe even like long term mitigation programs specifically associated with the with the with the core development of economics and and businesses right and over here emergency management didn't really play a role in that which they should um, you know now I think you're going to see that that the silo be broken down almost and, and I hate to say it this way but almost in the sense of like how we started seeing the silos break down after 9-11 and, and and I don't know why we get maybe this is the comfort level that we get put into these silos to be able to work inside of them. Um, and we don't step outside of those. And when I say it's, it's a we're guilty for all, all areas, right? Whether the public health is doing something over here and emergency management is doing something over here, even though there's times when they can cross pollinate and really get synergy and work together, uh, they don't because um, they're not allowed to for whatever reason. Um, now I think you're going to see a lot of those walls being broken down and, and you're going to see public health working more and more with emergency management. And, and we see this happening in some areas, uh, say, um, uh, say for instance, um, uh, Seattle, 
uh, when they started using emergency management um, for homelessness, right, in San Francisco as well. And it's realistically homelessness could be looked at more as a public health emergency than a resource emergency. But emergency managers have the ability uh, in their in their toolbox, if you will, to coordinate multiple res- multiple agencies and multiple organizations to go focus on a single problem. And I think you're going to see some of that happening again now with using public health inside there, and they'll be working together more side by side um, than you have seen in the past. Yeah, I, I think what you're saying there is emergency managers have a bias for getting stuff done, which is great. <laughs> it's a great skill to have, uh, being able to bring people together and actually make something happen. Um, but I, mean, I think the you know the point you you raised is such a good one. I remember you know one of the the books I was advocating a lot last year was a book by Dan Heath that came out called Upstream, uh, solving problems before they occur. And one of the things, the points that Dan made in that book was that when you look at a problem like homelessness or uh, crime or dropout rates, those kinds of things, the only way you get to solve them is to surround the problem with everybody who's got a piece of it or, or some knowledge about it. So bringing together emergency management, public health, law enforcement, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, only when you begin to sort of link and leverage across that whole network and draw on all the expertise, uh, all the abilities, all the jurisdictional authorities, then can you actually craft a response that, that gets to a complex that solves a complex problem? Um, because I think you know it's it it is that ability to coordinate across the boundaries that gets us to uh, to where we need to go. Because the the, the problems never seem to be defined by the oper- the organizational boundaries we we set up. <laughs> you know, it always requires more input from from more players. No, absolutely, and and I think you know, kind of going a little bit off, off topic here. One of the things I've been stressing over the years has been um, we really need to move emergency management um, out of that first response um, mindset. And what I mean by that is you see, especially here on the West Coast, a lot of emergency managers are put into um, your first response agencies first, and you know, police and fire. Um, and, and I think that's a disservice to um, the community because the emergency manager should really be coordinating between police, fire, public works, in some cases, public, the planning department, you know, working um, um, with land use issues, um, other things like this, and public health issues, right? Not every city has public health officers, right? Because, you know, they're too small and they rely on the county, but the emergency manager can be looking at that public health issue specifically for that smaller town, working with the county. Uh, to bring in other resources and, and, and other assets that can come in. Um, working with the city, what resources that they can provide uh, specifically for that event, you know. For instance, the town, the town I live in, you know, we're, you know, we, we were a full service city. We have a fire department and a police department. Um, but, you know, we don't have a public health um, department because we're, 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 we're tiny. So we rely upon on the county of Orange. Uh, to provide the, the public health on that. And so this crisis today kind of shows that we need to have a broader look and emergency management needs to kind of have a broader look on what type of disasters that they're responding to. So if if you had a magic wand, how would you design the relationship such that they're as seamless and synchronous as possible? What would it look like as these agencies came together? Well, first of all, I think that the emergency manager should be reporting to the highest elected official and or appointed official. So, for instance, the city manager um, and city manager in the in a weak uh, government um, like we have here in, in California, 
where the majority of the, t the cities um, have a, a city manager running the city for day to day, and they have elected officials that are part time elected officials. Now you take a look at Los the city of Los Angeles, obviously, city of San Francisco, uh, San Diego, which have a strong uh, government um, group, such as with the mayors, right? Um, where the mayor is actually doing the, the day to day administration of the, of the city. Y you know, they should be working for that person. And what I mean by that is just like the police chief does, the fire chief does. And this allows more access to decision making quicker, right? Without the layers. So remove those layers. That's how, that's the first part about it. And then, you know, when it comes into crises like we're having here specifically, we'll talk about COVID for a second, is that that gives them the ability to make decisions, the ability to get funding, the ability to uh, call for meetings uh, where people will show up to them uh, and, and not have to, you know, not show up, right? Uh, one of the issues that you see, you know, somebody who say is 16 layers down from the mayor, uh, they ask for a meeting and people want to know if it's really important or not for them to show up um, and, and they don't, you know. So having that ability to, to call for meetings um, and having the right players come into the room and not secondary third persons that do not have decision-making ability. And that's a frustration that you see a lot is that you have people that will send, okay, we'll send a representative for our department, but the person doesn't have any decision-making abilities, which really slows down that decision-making process. And, and that's, that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see the decision-makers in the room together making decisions, not having a second or third person come in who does not have the authority to, to decide. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point because when you get the, it's one thing to get the right agencies around the table. It's another thing to get the right people from the right agencies around the table, so you actually can make can make things happen. And it is, I, I think, a matter of, uh, you know, as we've seen in our research, a, a way of of thinking about this as a collective leadership challenge and not worrying so much about who's in charge, as how do we each contribute to solving the problem. Right. Um, and then that who's in charge part becomes a little bit less important. And people don't hold on to it quite so, uh, quite so firmly. So you know, you've been doing emergency management for a long time, and now you, you know, you've seen public health responses. What do you think public health can learn from, from emergency management? Coordination and, and sharing. Um, and I'm saying that the public health departments in general uh, are trying to hide things, um, but I just don't think they know necessarily how to share things within the restrictions that are there. So, for instance. You know, sometimes you ask questions regarding, um, you know, health issues, right? Uh, I'll go back to H1N1, for instance. You know, we had a case um, where a person had H1N1 into our city. That's why we got invited into the, the big meetings, you know, because we had a case inside of our city. But they wouldn't tell us who or, or, or where the person was. And I understand the, the why behind it, the HIPAA reasons and, and whatnot. Uh, but it makes it really hard for us to, as emergency managers, uh, to be able to um, uh, do our job necessarily, you know, when it comes to not having the right information. Now, I, I understand that individual protections have to be there. And I'm not saying that people that don't need to know should, should know um, who they are. Uh, but there has to be a trust between the emergency manager um, and the public health officials that we're going to do the right thing. And, and you know, most of us um, have come from some sort of background where we understand uh, non-disclosure agreements and, and, and whatnot. And, you, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to go to the media and, and start outing people, uh, but there has to be that trust. And we do this beforehand, right? We have to do this before an event occurs by practicing together, working together um, and, and having that relationship. 
Um, so I think that's the, the hard part where emergency, where public health needs to learn to, to trust and they also need to learn to coordinate um, with other agencies in play well in the sandbox together. I guess that's probably the best way to say it. And so to, uh, to give fair voice to my friends in public health, I'm gonna take their side of the equation and suggest what they might teach emergency management um, as well. Because I think, again, I think both sides of this equation or the, you know, they're not the only two players here, but people have good hearts and wanna do the right thing. And sometimes it just, it gets awkward because they're again, not used to sharing or don't know how to share in certain ways or have certain restrictions that aren't fully understood by the other parties. But you know, as I think about public health and I work for a school of public health, so I spend a lot of time with, the, with these folks, there's three big things they can teach. One is they always take a population level perspective. Um, so they're looking broadly, they're understanding the impact on a community, they understand some of the informal networks, and they actually see the people as opposed to seeing the structures and the, and the, the infrastructure that may get disrupted in a, in a disaster. Uh, and that's an important thing to do in understanding, you know, again, first responders tend to respond to an individual address, to an individual case. Uh, public health takes a broader view and looks at the, that larger population. So I think it's a good, again, good balancing of perspectives that can really help. Um, the second is that they are very well uh, versed in what are known as the social determinants of health. So when they look at trying to figure out why a population is healthy or unhealthy, um, they are looking at housing security, income security, what's their food situation, what's the education, all those pieces. And I think that actually, I would love to see an analysis of the social determinants of preparedness. Because uh, yeah. as much as we, we give kind of generic advice of, you know, have 72 hours worth of food and water and make sure your flashlight batteries are good. <laughs> but, you know, and that's nice. <clears throat> but there are huge social factors that go into how well different neighborhoods are prepared, different you know, communities are prepared. And a better understanding of that, I think, we, we might really move the ball forward on, on actually getting a culture of preparedness by understanding the culture as well as the preparedness piece of it. And I think the third level, the third place is, um, you know, public health professionals are really driven by data. They make data-driven decisions. They're used to doing statistical analysis. They're kind of looking at what's, what's the data that tell us? What does it mean? They can do that analysis and bake it down. They, they, they aren't big on, on intuitive decision-making. Uh, they always want to see more data. And again, I think it's a place where you balance because there's times all that, that, that analysis can slow you down in times when you, when you can't afford to go slow, but it would be a, a good balance. I think a greater appreciation of data-driven and evidence-based decision-making and emergency management would be helpful. Again, not that one's always right or one's always wrong, but finding a balance between the two. So, you know, as I look at it, there's, there's actually great areas where each specialty could teach the other. And if we can break down the boundaries a bit and create the right venues for, for sharing and, and co-creation, um, you could do some, make very, very big positive steps forward by bringing the two together and, and sharing. Absolutely. And I, you guys couldn't see me, but I was shaking my head vigorously when Eric was talking about the data-driven decision-making, because I think that's where we're headed anyway. Um, we have the tools to, to be able to do this. You know, um, Esri has some really great tool, you know, toolkits that you can purchase um, or some guys have access to um, in other ways um, to help with, with making uh, uh, decisions uh, based upon data and not just uh, gut instinct, which uh, sometimes we we tend to do too much as emergency managers. We, we make decisions based upon, uh, you know, 
40% of information. We're happy to have that 40%. Um, and, it's, and we do the incremental changes as it needs to come. Uh, but sometimes that causes confusion. And we can see this confusion, in, you know, based upon uh, the, the concept of the mask mandates, right? Where uh, that's a, you know, they come out first and say, no, don't worry about masks. And then more information comes in. They said, okay, let's put the masks on. Um, and it really kind of confused the population on, on what information is correct and not. And, and sometimes uh, we, we forget that, um, um, you know, there will, be, there will be pushback at times if we're not smart about how we uh, communicate this uh, information to the public. Yeah, and I think to me, you know, I'm, I'm a, an amateur, but I have studied a bit of decision science and, and the, I'm really fascinated by the art and science of decision making. And it seems to me the, the people who are really good at it and the organizations who are really good at it, they know how to find that right mix of intuition versus you know waiting for the evidence and it's knowing when to make that call and uh and understanding that you know intuition is great when you've seen something 75 times before because you've got a lot of internal you don't quite know why you know it but you know it yeah you know a firefighter going into a building knows a whole lot about that fire you know before they even step over the threshold right they they're already sensing what what's going on in those environmental factors they can they can really they know how to process that information faster than you could even think about it uh consciously um and that's great that's really important knowledge and then there are times to step back and say no what's actually what, what's the data telling us what it, let's let's follow the science here and um you know again it's one of those things i like i like to think about things on on, on continua and it's sort of where do we want to be on that continuum right now between going with the gut versus going with you know waiting for the data and, and figuring that and doing the right analysis and uh you know it's a real learning curve and i think we're we're we are getting more and more the ability to process more data faster and so i think we're going to see more more and more data-driven decisions it's going to be the protocol it's going to be okay you do it it's scripted out until you get to a point where the script doesn't doesn't have right. the information and, and then you go you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of work the last few weeks on social vulnerability. Um, and, and actually yesterday I was talking to, I don't know if you know Vance Taylor or not, but he is a um, um, access to functional needs expert here uh, in California. Uh, he has uh, muscular dystrophy himself and he's wheelchair bound. And so he comes from a unique perspective on, on that. And we had a conversation yesterday um, on the IAM Region 9 uh, webinar specifically on social vulnerability and what it is for those with access to functional needs. But to expand that along um, with the underserved populations and the other vulnerable populations that are out there, uh, what does that mean? And I think, again, working emergency managers working in conjunction with, with public health uh, can really get a better understanding of where their vulnerabilities are in their communities because public health tends to work with those populations on a regular basis. And that's another thing where they can work together on and really make good decisions prior to a disaster um, occurring and, and having that plan set forth. That's a great example. I really like that a lot. Now to wrap up today, I want to just, you know, it's been a year and a half now with COVID. You've been, you've seen a lot of action from where you are. You've talked to a lot of people. What do you think some of the leadership lessons learned are going to be that are going to stick? That we're actually going to turn from lessons learned to lessons applied as we move forward, to thinking about future public health emergencies. Wow, Eric, that's a really hard question. And the reason why I say that is because we like to think that we're going to pick up these lessons learned and and run with them. And I, I really hope we do. 
my my heart wants it to happen that way my brain says on the other side that we we have a very short memory on things and we tend to collectively go back to what was comfortable for us and i think what we really need to be focusing on is is a two prong right and resiliency even though it's a buzzword right now and, and it seems to be you know super sexy to say a lot um and, but I, I'd like to move beyond resiliency into what I'm stealing from Nicholas Taleb and the idea of anti-fragility and how do we make our communities anti-fragile when it comes to uh, to a, a COVID again or to the next, whatever the next respiratory illness that comes across uh, from most likely China um, or in, in that area. And that seems to be where they, where they, um, where they come from, historically speaking, and, and if you take a look at the factual basis of it, we have to be really monitoring what's going on and, and being able to lean forward and start early on on prevention, right? And I think we were looking at this, you know, for a while, not, not COVID necessarily, uh, but, you know, respiratory illnesses coming from China, and it wasn't something that we should have been surprised by. Right. When I say we, the collective, we emergency managers and public health said, OK, here we go. But the thing that really frustrated me on this particular one was why was our strategic national stockpile so outdated? Right. We put it together uh, back with SARS, I guess, around there or was it MERS, one of those two. And um, it just wasn't updated. So we had masks that were. Uh, falling apart. We had medications that were expired in that strategic stockpile. So that's what I'm talking about, that our, our memory or our, you know, our, our reflex at least is, is very um, uh, slow, right? So we need to not allow that to happen again. And I, I really think that we need to have some mandates saying that we need to manage those national strategic stockpiles better. Um, and we need to fund those as well. And so if we can come up with those two things, we'll be ahead of the curve for the next one. And there will be a next one. There will absolutely be a next one. And I think that uh, if we can fund it, I think, you know, and going back to our the, the previous discussion we just had around data-driven decision-making, I think that we really need to be have a much more sophisticated understanding of of risks and how to prepare for them. And I think we, part of what we saw with the national stockpile this time around was things could shift too much based on the whims of whoever is directing funding and or procurement at any one time. So we're mm -hmm. worried about anthrax, we overload on anthrax stuff. Or we're worried about, <laughs> you, know, at, you know, after 9-11, we all we overloaded on worrying about buildings hitting planes. Um, and I think that, you know, not that those risks are not real, but let's look at where what's the what's the largest risk? What's the most likely risk? How do we build for a stockpile, for example, and then many other measures that best you know, best prepares us for the set of scenarios we think are likely to to uh, to jump out? Because as we saw with with uh, with COVID, you know, this is one that shut down a whole lot. It wasn't just a public health emergency; it became a an economic emergency, uh, it became an education emergency. Uh, really a lot of cascading effects uh, around the globe. So it's, uh, but we'll see. I, I hope, I very much hope that uh, the short memory phenomenon uh, doesn't hold true with this one because I think there's so much to learn and we can, we actually can be so much better prepared for every kind of risk. If we look through and say, when did we do things well? What were the conditions under which we did things well? Where did we not do things so well? And what were the conditions 
that may have caused us to do that, we could we could make a giant leap forward as we uh, prepare for whatever next hits us. And and you know it's it's a scary time. We've got floods in Germany. You've got yeah. floods in China. You've got fires out west. You've got I mean, we're getting hit all over the place and uh, we've got to be really uh, ready to respond in a moment. And I hope actually preparedness gets its groove back after this. So we, as you said, we, we think through what we need, we fund it, we're prepared as best we can uh, and not just being reactive because that's always, uh, you know, react, reactive is never the best way to be able to, uh, to respond to an incident. You know, I, I was asked before, before COVID, this was years ago, um, you know, what I thought the, the biggest risk was um, to us. And I said, I would say pandemic flu, right? That was because that was what we called it, pan flu plans, pandemic flu. And, you know, one of my coworkers was like, well, you know, we haven't seen a flu in 100 years or whatever, like something like this. And I'm like, no, but we had other other near miss healthcare health crises. And I think that's what it's going to be. And so maybe, you know, using the terminology pandemic flu is probably the wrong terminology to use, but definitely, you know, some sort of, of, of health crisis in the, where regardless of whether it's a, a SARS, MERS, COVID, you know, um, the gorgeous COVID is really another SARS, but, you know, some sort of respiratory disease. And I, I, I still, to this day, will stay, will stand on that. And I said we could see just what happened because, because people didn't take it seriously and didn't have great plans in place. It, it was definitely economically speaking, uh, much worse than it, it should have been. Um, you know, as far as the health side of it, it wasn't as bad as it could have been, but it, it could still get worse. So, I, I still think we should be leading that way. Uh, we always need to be leaning forward. And if we start doing well with say planning for this mass casualty, mass event, such as the pandemics, um, we do the small things better. Uh, and I learned this when I was working in Dana Point, we planned for nuclear because we had a nuclear power plant down the street from us. We planned for nuclear um, issues and it made us better doing everything else. So if we can plan for exercise and get good at um, this big event, doing the small events become just cakewalk. And that's a great point or great moment at which to uh, to close this conversation. Unfortunately, we do need to bring it to a close. But plan for the big ones. Figure out how to do those well. The small ones become a piece of cake. I love that thought. Todd DeVoe, thank you so much for joining us today on Leader ReadyCast. Uh, again, you can catch Todd's own podcast, EM Weekly. Uh, go get that wherever you get your podcast. It's well worth listening to. And we look forward to you joining us for our next edition of Leader ReadyCast coming out once a month from the MPLI. Thanks very much. Always remember, be ready to lead. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.